Good morning. Turn with me, if you would, to Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 12. You can look at that in your bulletin or the copy you brought with you. 1 Thessalonians 5. It is a pleasure and a privilege once more for me to have the chance to serve you in this way. This week I was particularly blessed considering what the Lord had for us this morning. Let's hear now this this word from the Lord. Starting in verse 12 and I'll read through verse 24. This is God's holy and inspired word. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, Help the weak. Be patient with them all. See that no one repays evil, anyone for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God and Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Pray with me. Our good and our our thrice holy God, we pray that you would miraculously transform us into the image of your Son by the power of your Spirit as we read and hear from your Word. May these words be your words, and may we learn to love them. Lord, in your Son's holy and strong name. Amen. And this is an interesting text. At least in uh, my copy of the ESV, our text this morning comes in two paragraphs. Verses 12 to 22 is the first paragraph. In the second paragraph, there is verse 23 and verse 24. The first paragraph is a series of, of short commands that cover pretty much everything. And then that, that second paragraph is one of our favorite benedictions. This may seem uh, kind of odd, but I think it's clear from the way that Paul writes this that he wants us to read these paragraphs together. And the different tone in these paragraphs, they can, they can give us a kind of a whiplash, as it were, right? Paul first, he, he, he rattles you, almost embattles you with these commands. Do it, do it, do it, do it, do not, do not, do. 
And then immediately we come to one of the most soothing passages, which when we read it, our, our shoulders drop and we are invited to relish in the goodness of God. So to say here, though, that, that Paul does this um, in order to, to soften the blow of his commands, I don't think that's, that's quite enough. Right? I don't think Paul is concerned to cause offense by giving the commands of the Lord. But the tension in this text, the tension between these two paragraphs is intentional. And it reflects, I think, a deep pastoral wisdom on Paul's part. Before you can look up from the text, from the litany of commands that God gives you, and and respond with the objection, but such a thing is impossible, you already see Paul praying for you. Reminding us that we are not alone, that our holiness is not ultimately about us, and in fact we are in God's hands where all things are possible. This morning I would like us to consider then that which makes these paragraphs make sense together. And that is what we can call the mystery of sanctification. Already in this letter we saw Paul's call to more and more holiness. And we also saw there how Paul hinted at the fact that this holiness could only be brought by God. It could only be taught by God and only had by by faith in God's Son. And in this passage, Paul brings into even starker relief and, and distinction the role that we play in sanctification and the role that God plays in sanctification. And the way and the fact that these things work together is what we can call the mystery of sanctification. Now, it is not mysterious because it is unintelligible or secretive or too complicated to be useful. It is mysterious because when we talk about sanctification, what we are talking about is is that miracle that the Spirit performs within and, and behind our ordinary, daily, everyday Christian life. This passage is is designed to make us ponder this mystery. And here the Apostle calls us to walk in this mystery, in short, by saying, do it, do it, God will surely do it. Do all that God has commanded you to do, because God is faithful to do it. So this morning, we'll come back to this text. I want to come back here to consider these two sides of, of sanctification, but first I'd like to get us there in a, in a roundabout sort of way in order to illustrate that although what Paul gets at here is mysterious, it is not altogether new. It is in fact the wise way that God has always ministered to His people as He is making a holy people for Himself. Do it. Because God will do it, is the command that God has always given to create a holy people for Himself. 
So imagine sitting down for supper with your family. You are safe and secure inside the walls of Jerusalem during a peacetime in David's reign. And you, like the sons of Korah who wrote some of our psalms, you look at your fathers and your uncles and your grandfather sitting there, and you say, tell us the story of the conquest. Tell us about what Joshua did. Above the doorframe, imagine there's a rusty sword. It was a sword that your ancestor wielded, and it dealt a great uh, number of blows to a great number of Canaanites. You say, tell us what our ancestor did with that sword. Tell us about how we marched around Jericho. Tell us about how we overwhelmed Hazar and, and, and Hebron with force. Tell us about the wicked kings who lost their heads. And tell us about how we, how we finally got the land that God promised to Abraham hundreds and, and hundreds of years before. And in Psalm 44, the sons of Korah tell us what their fathers and grandfathers said to them in in moments like this. And they say this. They say, O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations, but Israel you planted. You afflicted the nations, but Israel you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, for not did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. It is a story about God's faithfulness to keep His promise to Abraham out of love for His people, even though they were not lovely. Your fathers would remind you that when the people stood there on on the edge of the land, Moses said to them the words of the Lord, Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust out the nations before you, It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me into the land. God says, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess the land, but because of the wickedness of these nations is the Lord your God driving them out before you. And you would ask, why? Why would God do this? And your fathers would continue with Moses' words, He did this so that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. The creation of a holy land, purged of evil for God's name's sake, was the Lord's prerogative, which he worked out for his own name's sake. But we also know don't we? Israel had to invade. They had to shed blood, both of theirs and of their enemies. They had to stand in the battlefield and feel that deep fear and face the impossible 
They looked across the battlefield and heard the rattle of weapons and armor and heard the shouts of an army quite larger than theirs and hear the command, charge. Listen carefully to what Moses was desperate for Israel to understand before they entered the land in Deuteronomy 9. Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and make them perish. He will subdue them before you. And, Moses continues, you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly. This is what the Lord commands and what the Lord has promised. It was the Lord who purged the land of evil. But when God bears his mighty right arm to accomplish his purposes and keep his covenant, his people do not take a back seat. God is not faithful to Abraham instead of Israel struggling. But it is precisely by bringing Israel through their laborious and even mortal fight that God works his purposes. The only reason that Israel could pick up the sword with any hope instead of with dread alone is because the Lord was faithful to keep his purposes. But because the Lord is unswervingly committed to create a holy people and a holy land for himself, Israel had to pick up the sword. The reason we have this story, and so many others like it in the Old Testament, is not only to teach us that God saved Israel by grace and not by works. Well, that is true. Rather, we also have this story as a description for us of the pattern of how God keeps his promises. How he works his purposes to make a holy people for himself. And it is the kind of story that you, Christian, are supposed to read and and know and remember and draw upon to understand the words that Paul writes here. And, And specifically that single important word near the end of our passage, verse 24, faithful. When it is time to pick up the sword, Christian, against sin. When it is time to stare down the impossible, the stories of God's faithfulness, the proof of God's commitment in the blood of his Son, is what makes it possible for you to face that calling with hope instead of dread. And at the same time, because the Lord is unswervingly committed to make you holy, you have to pick up the sword. Think also of the the promise that God gave to Abraham that through his family, the whole world would be blessed. So how does God make the, the fulfillment of that blessing in Christ and the gospel go out to the world? Right? It was not that 
the heavens opened and a golden Zion just dropped from heaven that made all the Gentiles' heads turn and run to the throne of God. No. It took and it still takes missionaries like Paul who are um, along the way shipwrecked and imprisoned. He was beaten, stoned within an inch of his life. Right? If you recall in the book of Acts, it is precisely the persecution taking place in Jerusalem in Acts 8 that, that caused the apostles to scatter and bring the gospel to the world. This is much like today, where consistently the areas where the church grows the fastest is precisely where the church is most hated. Again, God bears his mighty arm to accomplish his long, old-aged promises. Precisely, not by circumventing our suffering and our labors, but by requiring them. And because God has these purposes, we must labor. So look at verse 24. It captures this pattern. The God who called Israel out of Egypt to conquer a new land was faithful to do it. Jesus, who calls the church to make disciples in all the nations, is faithful to do it. This is how God keeps his promises. On the front of your bulletin, you will see a verse from Ezekiel 36. You will see God's new covenant promise to make you walk in his ways by giving you a new heart. He promises to make you a holy people with a holy heart. And he goes on in that chapter again to say that he will do so for his own name's sake. And again, he will accomplish this promise according to the same pattern. He, verse 24, calls you out of a life of sin and a life to a life of righteousness, and he is faithful to do it. He will be faithful not by making holiness easy for us, but by making our labor for holiness make sense as part of his plan to make a holy people for himself. This is the mystery of sanctification. It is the wise way that God has always ministered to his people in making a people for himself. So let's come back again to to our text. That stark tension between the two paragraphs here, it (laughs) jumps out and it grabs you and it demands, do all that God has called you to. God is faithful to make you sanctified and blameless. So consider with me just the first paragraph, the first part. This is what God calls us to. In verse 12 and 13, Paul begins by tapping on that particular evil inherent in all of us, um, that deeply ingrained instinct to resist authority. Paul calls the church to be a rare kind of community. That is a community where there is hierarchy, but there's no animosity. One of the primary ways right, that God directs his people and, and makes them holy is by organizing them under leaders, overseers. And, and, and these overseers are responsible for delivering the word of God, which also means they are responsible for delivering the word of God against your sin. 
It is a, a serious and a, and a hard and a high calling to, to point at your sin, someone's sin, and say, thus says the Lord. And God says, that is the way you're going to love them. And Paul says, we are to love them for doing it. That is a hard thing. And ironically, <laughs> it is sometimes even harder right, to love our leaders isn't it? When we, when we disagree with them in the less weighty matters. Practical ongoings of the church and such things. Our leaders have a noble task, worthy of love and esteem. But admonishment can be hard to love. Oversight can be hard to esteem. And then Paul only raises the stakes, doesn't he? In verse 13, he ends, just be at peace with all. The vision for a community that is set apart from the world by the fact that it has leaders doing hard things with people who love them, and everyone is at peace, this is not just a rare community, it is an impossible community. Now, verses uh, 12 and 13, if they describe a community where there is hierarchy but with no animosity, then look in verses 14 and, and 15... He then describes a community that has degrees of strength and maturity, but with no disdain. The word here for idle, it doesn't so much refer to laziness as much as something like lackadaisical disorder. It is the word that would be used to describe a a military outfit that is sloppy and unprepared for action. It's precisely the reason why we need leaders. Um, It is not the way that Israel marched into the land, and it's not the way that we pursue holiness together. God says to be organized under leaders because it takes order to accomplish things together, to do hard things together, to advance the gospel to grow in holiness together. And here, Paul also is wise to know that that we do this next to brothers and sisters who have physical weaknesses or spiritual weaknesses or who have hearts that that are faint. Ask yourself the challenging question. Are there people who you avoid conversations with Perhaps because you are just tired of hearing that same, to you, silly prayer request over and over. Perhaps because you cannot understand why it is that they're struggling with this or or that. How wide is the gap between your patience for them and the patience that Christ has for them? Or perhaps it is us who see ourselves in the categories that Paul lists here. Perhaps our fear is that we use up the patience of others. And our struggle is to always trust God, knowing that he is patient with us. Imagine a community, any community, with degrees of difference as as broad and and wide as they are in God's church, and with no disdain for the weaker. An impossible 
community, to be sure. Perhaps it's even intimidating or, or scary to begin to think about the ways that God might be calling us to show patience to those who we've already decided are less than deserving of our time. And look at verse 15. Christian, when you are wronged by one of us, and you will be and you probably have been many times, Paul says here, do the harder thing of not paying them back. So, don't wage a passive war or wage a war with words behind their back or to their face. Instead, the way that that person who offended you grows in holiness and the way that you grow in holiness is by you always doing good to one another. And if, if all of this is not difficult enough, Paul marches on in verses 16 to 18. He calls you to walk in all of life, all of the time, with the joyful, thankful, prayerful attitude of Christ in the face of all circumstances. Verses 29, excuse me, 19 to 21, Paul emphasizes the importance of preserving the holiness and the purity of the truth that is accepted and taught in the church. And in verse 22, just in case there was anything he missed, he covers it all. Abstain, just abstain from every form of evil. People of God, pause for a moment. Look at your calling. Just look at what God calls you to. Look at what Paul says God requires of you more and more. Look at the necessary task in front of you which you must do. Look at what you must do and must not shirk back from. It is to be a a holy people organized into a hierarchy without animosity as you live together with different degrees of strength but with no disdain for one another as you never wrong each other, always do good for each other. In your own walk, you are never to not be joyful, never not thankful for all that you have, and so never covetous of what you don't. Be always prayerful, always at peace, always truthful, never evil, always good. Do it. Do it. Do it. You must. This is the calling your holy creator God has called you to. Face it. Look at it. Consider it. Take stock. But do not look at it with the eyes of those ten spies God sent into the land, whose names you don't remember. Whose eyes saw the giants and the wealth of the land and the cities, the towers, the walls, and whose hearts, so often like ours, saw nothing but an impossible calling. If that is all we see, then we, like Israel, will shirk back. We will prefer the land of Egypt, of sin and death, 
and misery because the only things we can consider are our fears, our circumstances, our shortcomings, our sinful hearts. Look, rather, face and take stock of your calling with the eyes of Joshua and Caleb. Consider your calling with faith in the one who is faithful. He will surely do it. Do you believe it? Do you believe that you can, in fact, be holy, perfectly holy at Christ's return? And even in this life, every day, progressively, more and more holy, God will surely do it. Do you believe it? This is what Paul asks you in placing the second paragraph immediately after confronting you with the impossible calling God has for your life. Look with me at the final verses then. Paul, the pastor, he reminds us that perfect peace has its source in only one place, which is the God of peace. And and the reason that Paul can make this prayerful wish here, this benediction as we call it, and the reason he can, he can make this wish to God is, is because he, he knows that God is absolutely committed to doing these things. So he can pray these things in the name of the Son, according to the will of God, because he knows it is the Lord's prerogative that he has been driving out through all of history and has promised to you from Ezekiel 36 in the death and resurrection of the Son, it is to make you, Christians, a holy, sanctified people. God's commands here, as we've seen and and elsewhere, right? They tend to be littered with this emphasis on never, all, every, always, etc. And this is because God's sacred mission, as Paul says here, is to sanctify you completely in your whole soul, in your whole spirit, in your whole body. So we have to hold these two things firmly together. And this is the mystery of sanctification, that we must do all that God has called us to, because God has called us to do it, and He will surely do it. Now notice... Paul does not say then that we don't need to do all that God calls us to because God will just do it anyways. That kind of attitude, it expresses the fact that that you actually don't have that disdain and disgust for your sin. You actually would prefer a life in slavery to the holy and eternal life that Christ calls you to both in eternity, in the future, but also here and now. On the other hand, Paul does not say, if you walk in holiness enough, then 
God will meet you halfway down the mountain and just carry you the rest of the way. You don't have to prove your worthiness to get holiness. You don't have to expend all of your energies on your own before God's grace meets you. The Lord does not bring you to holiness because you are worthy of it. Like Israel, you must not prefer Egypt to the Holy Land, or you will shirk back. And like Israel, you must understand that the Lord does not bring you to this Holy Land in life because of your own righteousness. He does it for His own name's sake. The wise way God has always worked to make a people for Himself is in the mystery that you must do all that God has called you to, and you can because God is faithful to do it. So to close this morning, let's take a step closer even to the center of how this mystery works. Why? Why does God choose to be faithful to His promise by having you go through the daily experience of dying to sin and living to righteousness. Why is that how God chooses to bear His mighty arm? The reason that your daily fight has to be dying to sin and living to God is that death and resurrection is the imprint of Christ's life on your life. It is the dynamic, long-learned way that you become like Christ. Right? It is not as though the mold into which God presses us is, is static. Or a standstill picture, which, which is how most molds work that we think of. Right? But we are not just immediately imprinted into the standstill image of a glorious Christ. Rather, the, the, the imprimatur or the model of Christ itself is dynamic. It is not simply that of perfect holiness, but because of our sin and the, the hold that, that sin has on us, it is a perfect holiness that has to be forged through the process of death and then glory. Suffering, then glory. Death, then resurrection. We bear the family name, Christians, or little Christs, because we share in this family resemblance the pattern of Christ's death and resurrection. So do not respond to your impossible calling by running away from the call to die to sin, wanting only, expecting only, resurrection. God holds out to you a resurrection to new and holy life that can be and is only ever sweet to you when and precisely because you are disgusted with and hate and want to die to sin. But again, God does not teach us to hate sin by just snapping His fingers and moving you from lover of sin to lover of God. He does bring you to new life. 
He justifies you. He puts a new heart in you. He brings you to new birth. But then, like any newborn needs training, so do you. And, and so He trains your loves and your desires and your beliefs and your longings by, by, to, to be like Christ by taking you in that pattern of Christ, of death and resurrection of saying no to sin and yes to righteousness. No to sin, yes to righteousness over and over and over every day. And, and every time you become more like Him and hating sin and loving righteousness. And every time this occurs in your daily, ordinary Christian lives, it is the glorious, gracious miracle of the Holy Spirit bringing you to life. And every time, every time, you have to do something. And often, something very hard. But you do it. And you can only do it because it is God who is faithful to make you sanctified. people of God, consider your good and your impossible calling. Look at it. Face it. Take stock. And believe that God is faithful to do it. He will surely do it. Charge. Gracious God, Holy Father, we pray that you would work mightily in us despite ourselves to teach us death, that we might attain a personal, sweet familiarity with the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Lord, Grant us the strength to walk in your ways as weak, as faint-hearted, and as fragile as we are. Lord, you are so good, so glorious to bring us this way. We praise you for your faithfulness. Amen.